Disc 4 They all set off up the rest of the slope of Old Towers Hill, Eilie on the toboggan with Di and Fanny the lamb, and Timmy sitting in state on George's toboggan, the girls walking behind. Timmy was enjoying himself. He didn't like the way his legs went down into the snow when he tried to run. It was much easier to sit on the toboggan and be pulled along. Lazy thing, said George, and Timmy wagged his tail, not caring a bit what anyone said. Julian looked at his compass as he went and walked due south for some time. Then Eilie gave a call and pointed to the right. That way, that way, she said. She wants us to go westwards now, said Julian, stopping. I wonder if she's right. By my reckoning, we're going dead straight for Old Towers now. But we shall be going up the hill to the right of it if we go her way. That way, that way, repeated Eilie imperiously, and Di barked as if to say she was right. Better follow her way, said Dick. She seems so jolly certain of it. So Julian swerved to the right a little, and the others followed. They went a good way up the steep hill, and Julian began to pant. Is it far now? he asked Eilie, who was petting her lamb, and apparently taking no notice of the way they were going. Not that there was anything much to take notice of, except snow on the ground and snowflakes in the air. Eilie looked up. Then she pointed again, a little more to the right, and said something in Welsh, nodding her head. Well, it looks as if we're getting near this place of hers, this big, big hole, whatever it is, said Julian, and on he went. In about a minute, Eilie suddenly leapt off the toboggan and stood there, looking round with a frown. Here, she said, big hole here. Well, it may be, but I'd like to see it a bit more clearly, Eilie, said Julian. Eilie began to scrape down through the snow, and Timmy and Di obligingly went to help her, imagining that she was after rabbits or a hidden hare. I'm afraid the poor kids led us on a wild goose chase, said Dick. Why should there be a big hole here? Timmy and Eilie had now got down through the snow to the buried clumps of heather that grew all over the slopes of the mountains in that district. Julian could see the clumps sticking up, stiff and wiry, in the clearing that Eilie and the dogs had made. Timmy! You take Timmy! said Eilie suddenly to George. He'll fall down! Down! He'll fall like die one day! Down! Down! I say, I believe she's looking for an old pothole, said Dick suddenly. You know, those strange holes that are sometimes found on moors. Sudden holes that drop right down underground. They're called Dean holes, I think, in some places. We found one once on Kieran Island. Don't you remember? Oh, yes. That was in the heather, too, said George, remembering. And it led... To a cave below, by the seashore. That's what Eilie meant by a big, big hole. A pothole on the moors. Timmy, for goodness sake, come away. You may drop right down it. Timmy very nearly did go down the hole. George just caught his collar in time. 
but Di was wary. He had fallen down once before. Hole, said Eily, pleased. Big, big hole. Eily, find for you. Well, certainly you've found your hole, but how does it get us into old towers? said Dick. Eily didn't understand. She knelt there, looking down at the hole she had uncovered under the heather and the snow. I must say, that was a marvellous feat, said Julian. Coming straight to this place and finding the hole when she couldn't see a thing through the falling snow. She really is as good as a dog. <laughs> good little Eily Bach. Eily gave one of her sudden smiles and slipped her hand in Julian's. Go down? Yes, she said. Eily, show way. Well, we'd better go down if it's possible, said Julian, not much liking the idea, for he could see nothing but darkness inside the hole and had no idea of what lay below. Fanny the lamb was tired of waiting about. She gave a little leap to the edge of the big round hole and then put her small head in. She kicked up her heels and was gone. She's jumped into the hole, said George, amazed. Here, wait, Eily. You can't jump too. You'll hurt yourself. But Eily slithered into the hole, then let herself go. Eily, here, came a small voice from below. You come, quick. Chapter 18 Inside Old Towers Well... Did you see that? She just let go and dropped, said George, amazed. I wonder she didn't break her legs. Julian, shine your torch down. Julian shone it down. It's a pretty good drop, he said. I think we'll take the ropes off our toboggans and let ourselves down on those. I don't particularly want to break a leg or sprain an ankle just at present. If we pull our toboggans over the hole and let their ropes hang down into it, they will hold us safely, said Dick, and pulled his toboggan right across the hole. Then Julian pulled the other toboggan across as well, and soon the ropes were dangling down, ready to take each of the four children. What about Timmy? asked George anxiously. Di has jumped down, though I wonder he didn't break a leg. I'll wrap my coat over him and tie one of the ropes round him, said Julian. Then we can let him down easily. Come here, Tim. Tim was soon tied up in the coat with the rope. Then Dick slithered down on another rope and stood on the floor of the hole, ready to take Timmy when Julian let him down. It really wasn't very difficult. Eily looked rather scornful as the four children used the ropes. Julian laughed and patted her shoulder. We're not all goat-like, you know, he said. We don't gamble about the mountains all day long like you, Eily. Well, that was your big, big hole. What next? He shone his torch round. Yes, it's a pothole. There's a small underground cave here. Look, is that a tunnel leading out of it? Yes, said George as Eily and the lamb skipped off together down into the darkness of the tunnel. Look at that! No torch, no lamp, and yet she goes off into the darkness without any fear. I'd be scared stiff.
She's got eyes like a cat," said Anne. "Well, do we follow her? We'd better, or we shall lose her." "Come on, Timmy," said George, and all five went down the dark, winding little tunnel after Eily. Anne glanced up at the rocky roof, and thought with wonder of the thick masses of heather growing on its upper surface, all covered with thick snow. Eily was nowhere to be seen. Julian grew worried. "Eily, come back!" But there was no answer. "Never mind," said Dick. "There's probably only one way to go, and she knows we must take it. If we come to a fork, we'll shout again." But they didn't come to a fork. The tunnel wound on and on, going steadily downhill. Its roof was of rock, and so were the walls. But underfoot was sandy soil, alternating with rock ridges that made the going rather rough. Julian looked at his compass. "We've been going in a northeasterly direction, more or less," he said, "and that should be in the direction of Old Towers." I think I know how Eily gets into the house. Yes, this tunnel must pass right under the fence that bites, and under the grounds, and end somewhere near the cellars of the house," said Dick. "Or possibly in them. Where is that child?" They caught sight of her just then in the light of Julian's torch. She was waiting for them in a corner of the passage with Di and Fanny. She pointed upwards. We to garden," she said. "Little hole there, big for Eily, <laughs> not for you." Julian shone his torch upwards. Sure enough, there was a small hole there, which appeared to be overgrown with weeds or heather. He couldn't tell what. He looked at the rocky sides of the upward passage to the hole, and saw how easily Eily could have climbed up to squeeze out of it and roam the gardens. So. That was how it was. She had been able to pick up the notes that the poor old woman had thrown out so hopefully. Eily must surely have been the only person who managed to get into the grounds without permission. This way," said Eily, and led them past the garden hole and downwards again. We must be under the house now," said Julian. "I wonder if." But before he could finish his sentence. He saw that the passage had led them into some old, half-ruined cellars. It went through a half-fallen cellar wall, and Eily proudly led them into a dark, cluttered-up cellar, which, with its many barrels and old bottles, must once have been the wine cellar. What cellars! Exclaimed Dick in amazement as they went through one after another. Dozens of them. Hey, what's this, Eily? He had come to where one high wall had been broken down completely, but the breakage seemed to have been done by human hands. For the breaks looked new and were not covered with grime and mould as were the other fallen-down walls. A vast opening had been made into what seemed at first glance to be a low-walled cave. Then a curious sound came to their ears: the sound of water, water gurgling and splashing. Julian took a step forward to peer into the cave beyond the broken walls, but Eily tugged at his hand in terror. "No, no, not go there! Bad men, very bad men, bad place there!"
said Julian, amazed, taking no notice of Eilie's tugging hand. An underground river. Not just a stream, a river, flowing down through the mountain, probably fed by springs on the way. And I bet it goes right down to the sea somewhere. We know the sea isn't far away. Bad men down there, said Eilie in panic, pulling back. Dick and George too. Bang, bang, big fires, big noise. Come into the house quick. Gosh, isn't this extraordinary? Said Julian, quite astounded. What is going on here? We really shall have to find out. What in the world does Eileen mean? Anne and George were astonished too, but had no desire to go along the river and find out. Better leave this for now and go up into the house," said George. "After all, the old lady is the important thing at the moment. No wonder they imprisoned her in one of the towers, so that she wouldn't know what is going on." "Well, I'm blowed if I know what's going on," said Dick. "I'm not quite sure if I'm in some peculiar kind of nightmare or not." "Come into the house," said Eileen again, and this time, to her great relief, they followed her. Timmy trotting at the back with George, not quite knowing what to make of it all. Eily led them unerringly back through the smashed walls, through the musty cellars, and into some that looked as if they had recently been used for store places. Tins of food stood about, old furniture, old tins and baths and cans, barrels of all sizes and shapes. We go soft," said Eily. Meaning that they were now to walk quietly, they followed her up a long flight of stone cellar steps to a great door that stood half open. Eily stood at the top, listening, probably for the tall caretaker. Julian thought. He wondered if the fierce dog was anywhere about the house. He whispered to Eily, "Big dog in house, Eily." No, big dog in garden. Big dog, there all day and night," whispered back the little girl, and Julian felt most relieved. "Eily, find man," said Eily, and shot off by herself, motioning to the others to wait. "She's gone to find out where the caretaker is," said Julian. "My word, did you ever know anyone like her? Gosh, she's back again already." So she was. Smiling mischievously all over her face, man asleep, she said. Man safe. She took them through the door from the cellar into a perfectly enormous kitchen, with a colossal range at one end, black and empty now. A larger door nearby was open, and Eily darted into it. She brought out a meat pie and offered it to Julian. He shook his head at once. No, you mustn't steal," he said. But Eily either didn't understand or didn't want to, for she bit into the pie herself, gobbling great pieces down, and then put it on the floor for the animals to finish, which they were very pleased to do. Eily, take us to the old woman," said Dick, not wanting to waste time on things like this. Eily, you are sure there is no one else in the house? Eily, no," said the little girl. "One man to watch. He in there. 
and she pointed towards the door of a nearby room. He watch old woman, and dog watch garden. Other men don't come in here. Oh, well, where do they live then? These strange other men asked Julian, but Eily didn't understand. She led them to a great hall from which two wide stairways swept up, meeting above at an even wider landing. The lamb gambled up, and the little dog Di barked joyfully. "Shh!" said all the four children at once. But Eily laughed. She seemed quite at home in the house, and Dick wondered how many times she had let herself down into the pothole and come wandering in here. No wonder she spent so many nights away from home. She could always come and hide away in some corner of this big house. They followed her up the wide stairs, but Eily would come no farther than the second floor. She had brought them up two flights of stairs, and now before them stretched a great picture gallery that led to another stairway at the far end. The child hung back and refused to take Julian's hand. What's the matter? He asked. Eily. Not come here before," said the child, shrinking back. "Not come here, not ever. Those people see Eily," and she pointed at the rows of great pictures, each a portrait of some long dead owner of the house. "She's afraid of the portraits," said Anne, "afraid of all their eyes following her as she runs down the long gallery. Funny little thing. All right." You stay here, Eily. We'll go on up to the towers. They left Eily curled up behind a curtain with Di and Fanny. Anne glanced at the rows of grave portraits as the four of them, with Timmy, walked softly down the long gallery. She shivered a little, for their eyes seemed to follow her as she passed, looking grave and disapproving. Up another flight of stairs, and yet another. And now they were in a long passage that ran from tower room to tower room. Which was the tower they wanted? It was very easy to find out. All of them had their doors wide open, but one. This must be it," said Julian, and knocked at the door. "Who knocks?" said a weak, sorrowful voice. "Surely not you, Matthew. You have no manners." Unlock the door and do not mock me with your knocking. The key's in the door," said Dick. "Unlock it, Julian. Quick." Chapter Nineteen. A lot of excitement. Julian turned the key in the lock and opened the door. A stately old woman sat in a chair beside the window, reading a book. She did not turn round. And. Why have you come at this time of the morning, Matthew? She said without turning round. And how did you find the manners to knock? Are you remembering the time when you knew how to behave to your elders and betters? It isn't Matthew," said Julian. "It's us. We've come to set you free." The old woman turned at once, gaping in amazement. She got up and went over to the door. And the five saw that she was trembling. Who are you? Let me out of that door before Matthew comes. Let me out, I tell you. 
She pushed by the four children and the dog, and then stood uncertainly in the passage. What shall I do? Where shall I go? Are those men here still? She went back into her room and sank down in her chair again, covering her face with her hands. I, I feel faint. Get me some water. Anne sprang to pour out a glass of water from a jug on the table. The old woman took it and drank it. She looked at Anne. Who are you? What is the meaning of this? Where is Matthew? Oh, I must be going mad. Mrs. Thomas, you are Mrs. Thomas, aren't you? said Julian. Little Eily, the shepherd's daughter, brought us here. She knew you were locked up. You remember her mother, don't you? She told us she used to work for you. Eily's mother? Maggie, yes, yes. But what has Eily to do with this? I don't believe it. It's, it's another trick. Where are the men who killed my son? Julian looked at Dick. It was clear that the poor old lady was not herself, or else this sudden appearance of the children had upset her. Those men that my Llewellyn brought here, they wanted to buy my house, she said. But I wouldn't sell it. No, I wouldn't. Do you know what they said to me? They said that in this hill, far, far below my house, was a rare metal. A powerful metal, worth a fortune. What did they call it now? She looked at the children, as if expecting them to know. She shook her head as they didn't answer. Why should you know about it? You are only children. But I wouldn't sell it. No, I wouldn't sell my house, nor the metal below. Do you know what they wanted it for? For bombs to kill people with. And I said, no. Never will I sell this place so that men can dig the metal and make bombs. It is against the law of God, I said, and I, Bronwyn Thomas, will not do such a thing. The children listened in awe. The old lady seemed beside herself and rocked to and fro as she spoke. So they asked my son, and he said no, as I had. But they took him away and killed him. And now they are at work below. Yes, yes, I hear them. I hear the noises creeping up. I feel my house shake. I see strange things. But who are you? And, and where is Matthew? He keeps me here, locked in my room. He told me about Llewellyn, my poor dead son. He is a wicked man, Matthew. He works with those men, those evil men. She seemed to forget the four children for a little while. They wondered what to do. Julian saw that the poor woman was not fit to take down the stairs with them and through the tunnel, and certainly she could not get out of the pothole. He began to wish that he hadn't been so hasty in his ideas of rescue. It would really be best to lock the door again and leave her here in safety until he could get the police, for certainly now the police must come. We will leave you now, he said, and send someone soon to bring you out of here. We are sorry we disturbed you. And, to the astonishment of the others, he pushed them out of the room, turned the key in the lock again, and put it into his pocket. Aren't we going to take her with us? said George, surprised. Poor, poor old thing! 
No, how can we? said Julian, troubled. We must go to the police, no matter what Morgan says. I see it all now, don't you? The mother forbidding the son to sell the old place, in spite of the enormous amount of money offered, the son refusing too, and the men making a plot to get in somehow, and down to this metal, whatever it is, and work it. And killing the son, said Dick. Well, it may be so, but I should have thought that was a pretty drastic thing to do. Surely the son would have been reported missing very quickly, and the police would have made inquiries. Nobody said the son was missing or dead, did they? Except the old lady. Well, let's not talk about it now, said Julian. We've got to do something. I'm sorry to leave old Mrs. Thomas still locked up in that room, but I honestly think she would be safer there than anywhere else. They went down the two flights of stairs to the picture gallery. Eilie was there, still cuddling her two pets. She was pleased to see them and ran up, smiling. She didn't seem to notice that they hadn't the old woman with them. Man down there, very cross, she said and laughed. He awake now. He shout and bang. Goodness, I hope you won't see us, said Julian. We've got to get out of here quick and go to the police. Let's hope he won't come rushing at us or call in that fierce dog. They went downstairs at top speed, looking out for Matthew. But there was no sign of him in person, though there was a most tremendous row going on somewhere of shouting and banging. Eily, lock door, said Eily suddenly, pointing in the direction of the sounds. Man, lock old woman. Eily, lock man. Did you? Did you really lock him in? said Julian, delighted. You really are a monkey, but what a good idea! I wish I'd thought of it. He went to the door of the room in which the angry Matthew was. Matthew, he called sternly. There was a dead silence, and then Matthew's astonished voice came through the shut door. Who's that? Who locked me in? If it's one of you men, you'll be sorry for it. Silly joke to play on me when you know I've got to go up and see to old Mrs. Thomas. Matthew, this isn't one of the men," said Julian. And how the others admired his cool, determined voice. We have come to rescue Mrs. Thomas from that tower, and now we are going to the police to report all this, and to report too that her son has been killed by the men who are working far below this house. There was an astonished silence. Then Matthew's voice came again. What's all this? I don't understand. The police can't do anything. Llewellyn the son isn't dead. My word, no. He's all alive and kicking, and won't be very pleased with you, whoever you are. Clear off at once, but let me out before you go. I'm surprised that Alsatian outside didn't get you. That I am. It was the children's turn to be amazed now. So the son wasn't dead. Then where was he? And why had Matthew told old Mrs. Thomas such a cruel untruth? Julian asked him at once. Why did you tell Mrs. Thomas her son was dead then? What's it to do with you? Llewellyn told me to tell his mother that. The old lady wouldn't let him sell that stuff deep down under the house, the stuff that gets hold of cars and bicycles and ploughs and makes them heavy as lead, magnetizes them, so they say. Well, 
If he wants to sell it, why shouldn't he? But what I say is this: he shouldn't sell it to foreigners. No, that he shouldn't. If I'd have known that, well, I wouldn't have taken money from him to act like I did. The voice rose and fell as Matthew told his extraordinary tale. Then the man banged frantically on the door again. Who are you? You let me out. I've been kind to the old lady. You ask her. Though she's difficult and strange in her ways, I've been loyal to Llewellyn. Though he's not easy. No, that he's not. Who are you? I say. Let me out. Let me out. If Llewellyn catches me locked in here, he'll kill me. He'll say I've let his secret out. He'll say, "Let me out." I say. He sounds a bit mad," said Julian, thankful that the man was locked up. He must be a bit simple too, to believe all that the son told him, and do everything he was told to do. Well, we'd better go to the police. Come on, we'll go back the way we came. Let's just have a look down that river to see what the men are up to," said Dick. "Just you and I, Julian. It's such a chance. We needn't be seen, and it would only take a few minutes." The girls could wait somewhere with Tim. I don't think we ought to stop now," said Julian. "I really don't." "No, don't let's," said Anne. "I don't like this house. It's got a horrid feel about it, and I can't imagine what the shuddering would be like when the men start their work again deep down below, whatever it is." "Well, come along then," said Julian, and completely ignoring Matthew's yells and bangs. The children made their way through the kitchen and down the cellar steps, flashing on their torches to light their way. I bet Matthew is wild that we've left him locked up," said Dick, as they went through the vast cellars. "Serves him right, taking bribes from the sun and telling lies to that poor old woman. Hello, we've come to where the men smashed the walls here to get along the river tunnel. I suppose they found that was the easiest way to go down to where the precious metal was." Whatever it is, they stood looking through the smashed walls at the gurgling river. Come, come," said Eily, dragging at Julian's hand. "Bad men there." She was holding Di, her little dog, in case he fell into the rushing river. But Fanny the lamb was gambling loose as usual, and quite suddenly, she skipped off down the river tunnel, her tail whisking behind her madly. Cried Eily, "Fanny, come back!" But the lamb, thinking that she was going the right way, gambled on, deafened by the rushing of the water. Eily ran after her, as sure-footed as the lamb, hopping and skipping over the rough, rocky bank of the river. "Come back!" yelled Julian. But Eily either did not or would not hear, and she disappeared into the blackness of the tunnel. Almost at once, she hasn't got a torch, Jew. She'll fall in and drown. Yelled George in a panic. Timmy, go after her. Fetch her back. And away went Timmy obediently, running as fast as he could beside the black churning water, hurrying on its way downwards to the sea. Julian and the others waited anxiously. Eily didn't come back, nor did any of the animals. And George began to be very panicky about Timmy. Oh, Julian, what's happened to Tim and Eily? She said, with no torch. Oh, why did I let Timmy go? 
We all ought to have gone. They'll come back all right," said Julian, much more confidently than he felt. That child Eily can see in the dark. I really do believe, and she knows her way about like a dog. But when, after five minutes, not one of the four had come back. George started forward, flashing her torch on the rocky path beside the river. "I'm going to find Timmy," she said, "and nobody is going to stop me." And she was gone before the boys could get hold of her. Julian gave a shout of aggravation. "George, don't be so stupid. Timmy will find his own way back. Don't go down there. You don't know what you may find." "Come on," said Dick, starting off down the river too. George won't come back. We know that. Not unless she finds Tim and the others. We'd better go quickly before anything awful happens. Anne had to follow the boys, her heart beating fast. What a thing to happen! Just the very worst possible. Chapter Twenty, in the heart of the hill. It seemed like a bad dream to the four children, making their way over the rocky edge of the underground river. Their torches had good batteries, fortunately, and gave a bright light, so that they could see their way alongside the river. But at times, this rocky path they had to walk on grew very narrow indeed. Oh dear! Thought Anne, trying to keep up with the boys. I know I shall slip. I wish I hadn't these heavy snow boots on. What a noise the river makes booming along, and how fast it goes! Somewhere in front of the two boys and Anne was George, still calling for Timmy. She was very worried because he didn't come back to her, as he always did when she called him. She didn't realize that Timmy couldn't hear her. The river made such a noise in the enclosed rocky tunnel that Timmy heard nothing at all but the sound of the churning waters. Quite suddenly, the tunnel widened tremendously, the river making a big, broad pool before it tore on down the tunnel again. The walls opened out into an enormous cave, half of which was water, and the other half a stretch of rough, rocky floor. George was most astonished, but she was even more astonished at the other things she saw: two rafts. Sturdy and immensely strong, were moored at the side of the deep pool, and on the floor of the cave were what looked like tin barrels, standing in rough rows, presumably waiting to be packed onto the rafts. At one side of the cave were stacked great heaps of tins and bottles and cans, none of them opened, and on the other side, an equally vast heap of discarded ones, all opened. And thrown to one side, big wooden crates stood about too, though George could not imagine what they were for. The cave was dimly lit by electricity of some kind, probably from a battery fixed up somewhere. Nobody seemed to be about at all. George gave a call, hoping Timmy was somewhere there. Timmy, where are you? And at once, Timmy came from behind one of the big crates, his tail wagging hard. George was so glad that she fell on one knee and hugged him tight. "You naughty dog," she said, fondling him. "Why didn't you come when you were called? Did you find the others? Where is Eily?" A small face peeped from behind the crate nearby. 
the one from which Timmy had appeared. It was Eily. She looked terrified, and tears were on her cheeks. She clasped her lamb to her, and Di was at her heels. She ran straight across to George, crying out something in Welsh, pointing back up the tunnel. George nodded. Yes, we'll go back straight away. Look, here come the others. Eily had already seen them. She ran to Julian with a cry of delight, and he swung her up in his arms, lamb and all. He was very glad to see George and Timmy too. They all had a good look round the strange cave. I see what the idea is," said Julian. "Jolly clever too. They are mining that precious metal down here somewhere, and putting it onto those rafts there, so that the underground river can take it right down to the sea. I bet they've got barges or something waiting down at some secret creek to take the stuff away at night. Phew," said Dick. "Very ingenious." And they count on the strange noises and shudderings and things to frighten people and keep them away from this hill. Nobody dares to come prying round to see what's up. The nearest farm is Maga Glen Farm, where the Joneses live," said Julian. "They would really be the only people who could find out anything definite." Which they obviously did," said Dick. "I bet Morgan knows all about this." And is in with the son who sold the precious metal to the men who came after it, though it was his mother's. There's no strange noise or anything down here, no noise at all except the sound of the river," said Julian. "Do you suppose the works aren't going just now?" "Well," began Dick, and then suddenly stopped as Di and Timmy began to growl, Timmy in a deep voice and Di in a smaller one. Julian at once pulled Eily and George behind a big crate, and Dick pushed Anne there. They listened intently. What had the dogs heard? Was there time to rush back to the tunnel and make their way out before they were seen? Timmy went on growling in a low voice. The children's hearts began to beat fast, and then they heard voices. Where did they come from? Dick peeped cautiously round the crate. It was in a dark corner, and he hoped he could not be seen. The voices seemed to come from the direction of the great pool, and Dick looked over to it. He gave a sudden exclamation. "Jew, look over there! Do you see what I see?" Julian looked and was filled with astonishment. Two men had come up the tunnel from the sea. Evidently, walking on the rocky edge of the river, just as they themselves had done, and were now wading in the shallows of the pool. One is Morgan," whispered Julian. "And who's the other man? Gosh, it's the shepherd, Eileen's father. Would you believe it? Well, we always thought Morgan was mixed up in this, but I didn't think the shepherd was. Eileen." Had seen both Morgan and her father. She made no move to go to the shepherd. She was far too scared of Morgan. Morgan and the shepherd stood and gazed round a little, as if looking for someone. Then, keeping to the shadows, they made their way across the great cave, right to the back of it, where another tunnel, very wide, led downwards into the hill. As they went, a strange noise began.
The rumbling, whispered George, and Timmy growled again. But oh, doesn't it sound near? What a terrific noise! It's got right inside my head. It was no use whispering now. They had to shout if they wanted to say anything, and then the shuddering began. Everything shuddered and vibrated, and when the children touched one another, they could feel the vibration in the others' hands and arms. It's as if we're being run by electricity ourselves," said Dick, astonished. "I wonder if it's anything to do with that strange metal that is under the hill, that makes steel things heavy, so that ploughs won't plough and spades won't dig." Let's follow Morgan and the shepherd," said Julian, so excited now that he felt he must see everything possible. We can keep well in the shadows; nobody would ever guess we were here. Eily, you stay here," said Julian. "Big noise, big, big noise. Frighten Fanny and die." Eily nodded. She settled down behind the crate with her pets. Eily. Wait," she said. She had no desire at all to go any nearer that strange noise. In her mind, she imagined that possibly the thunder itself came from this hill and was made here. Yes, perhaps the lightning too. Morgan and the shepherd had now disappeared into the tunnel right at the back of the cave, on the opposite side to the great pool. The five went quickly over to it and looked down. It was very wide and very steep, but rough steps had been cut in it, so that it was not difficult to go down. They trod warily down the steep tunnel, astonished because it was dimly lit, and yet there were no lamps of any sort to be seen. I think it's the reflection of some great glare far below," shouted Julian above the rumbling. The noise was so loud. That it was almost like walking in the middle of thunder. Down and down they went, and the tunnel curved and wound about, always steep, rocky, and dimly lit. Suddenly, the noise grew louder, and the tunnel grew lighter. The children saw the end of it, the exit outlined in brilliant light, a light that shimmered and shook in a most curious way. We're coming to the works, the mine, where that strange metal is! Shouted Dick, so excited that he felt his hands trembling. Be careful, we aren't seen, Jew. Be careful, we aren't seen. They went cautiously to the end of the tunnel and peered out. They were looking into a vast pit of light, round which men stood, working some curious-looking machines. The children could not make out what they were, and indeed the light was so blinding that it was only possible to look with their eyelids almost closed. All the men were wearing face guards. Suddenly, the loud rumbling stopped, and the light disappeared as if someone had turned off an electric switch. Then, in the darkness, a glow formed. A strange glow that came upwards and outwards and seemed to go right through the roof itself. Dick clutched at Julian. "That's the kind of glow we saw the other night," he said. "My word, 
It begins down here, goes right up through the hill in some strange way, and hangs above it. That shimmering must come from here too. Some kind of rays that can go through anything, like X-rays or something. It's like a dream," said Anne, feeling George to make sure it wasn't. Just like a dream. Where are Morgan and the shepherd? Said Dick. Look, there they are, in that corner, not far off. Look out! They're coming back. The four children moved back quickly into the tunnel, afraid of being seen. They suddenly heard shouts and stumbled up the rocky steps even faster. Had they been seen? It sounded like it. I can hear someone coming up the tunnel behind us. Panted Dick. Quick, quick! I wish that noise would begin again. I know we can be heard. Someone was climbing swiftly up behind them. There were shouts and yells from below too. It sounded as if all the men were disturbed and angry. Why, oh why, had they followed Morgan and the shepherd? They could so easily have gone back to the cellars. They came to the top of the steep, rocky tunnel at last, and ran to hide behind the crates, hoping to slip into the river tunnel without being seen. They had to get Eily before they fled. Where was she? Eily, Eily! Shouted Julian.、Oh, Where's she gone? We don't leave her here. Eily! It was difficult to remember exactly where they had left her in this great cave. There's the lamb. Cried Julian thankfully, as he saw it on the other side of a crate. Eily, look out! There's Morgan! Shouted George, as the big farmer came out of the tunnel and ran across the cave. He saw the children and stopped in the utmost amazement. What are you doing here? He roared. Come with us quickly! You're in danger. The shepherd now appeared too. And Eily ran from behind her crate to him. He stared as if he could not believe his eyes, and then picked her up, calling something to Morgan in Welsh. Morgan swung round on Julian again. "I told you not to interfere," he roared. "I was handling this. Now we shall all be caught. Fool of a boy! Quick, we must hide and hope that the men will think we've gone down the tunnel." If we try to escape now, they will overtake us and bring us back. He swept the astonished children into a dark corner and pulled crates round them. Stay there, he said. We will do what we can. Chapter Twenty-One: An Astounding Thing. The five children crouched behind the pile of crates. Morgan pushed another crate up so that they were completely hidden. Dick. Clutched Julian. Julian, we've made fools of ourselves. Morgan was trying to find out the secret of old towers himself, with the help of the shepherd. They were about the only people in the neighbourhood who could guess what was going on. The shepherd could see all the strange things we saw while watching his sheep on the mountainside, and he told Morgan. Julian groaned. Yes. No wonder he was angry when he thought we were meddling in such a serious matter. No wonder he forbade us to do anything more. Gosh, we've been idiots. Where is Morgan now? Can you see him? No, he's hiding somewhere. Listen, here come the men," said Dick. 
There's a crack between two crates here. I can see the first man. He's got an iron bar or something. He looks pretty grim. The men came out cautiously, evidently not sure how many people they were after. They advanced across the cave, seven of them, all with weapons of some kind. Two went to the upper river tunnel. Two went to the one that led down to the sea, and the others began to hunt among the crates. They found the children first. It was Eilis's fault, poor child. She gave a sudden scream of fright, and in a trice, the man had pulled away the crates. Crash! One by one, they fell to the ground, and the amazed men found themselves looking at five children. But not for long. With a terrifying bark, Timmy flung himself on the first man. He yelled and began to fight him off, but Timmy held on like grim death. Morgan appeared from the shadows and surprised another of the men, jumping on him and getting on the ground. At the same time, catching hold of a second man and tossing him away, he had the strength of a giant. Run! He yelled to the children, but they couldn't. Two of the men had penned them into a corner, and although Julian leapt at one of them, he was simply thrown back again. These men were strong miners, and though not a match for the giant like Morgan, they could certainly take everyone else prisoner, including the gentle shepherd. He too was penned into a corner. Only Morgan and Timmy were fighting now. Timmy will be hurt," said George in a trembling voice. And she tried to push one of the men away to get at him. Oh, look, you! That man is trying to hit him with that bar. Timmy dodged the bar and sprang at the man, who turned and ran for his life. Timmy shot after him and got him on the ground. But there were too many men, and more were now coming up from the tunnel at the back of the cave, pouring in with weapons of all kinds. All of them were amazed to see the five children. The men seemed mostly to be foreigners and spoke a language the children couldn't understand. But one man was not a foreigner. He was obviously the boss, and gave his orders as if he expected them to be obeyed. He hadn't joined in the fight at all. The shepherd was soon overpowered, and his hands were bound behind his back. Morgan fought for some time, but then had to surrender. He was like an angry bull, stumping here, pulling there, roaring with rage as three men tried to tie his hands. The boss came up and faced him. "You will be sorry for this, Morgan," he said. "All our lives we have been enemies. You down at the farm, and I here at Old Towers." Morgan suddenly spat at him. "Where is your old mother?" he shouted. "A prisoner in her own house." Who has robbed her? You, Llewellyn Thomas. Then he went off into a spate of Welsh, his voice rising high as he denounced the man in front of him. Julian admired the fearless Morgan enormously as he stood with his hands bound, defying the man who had been a lifelong enemy. How many quarrels had these two had, living in the same countryside, trying their strength against one another? Julian wished intensely that he had obeyed Morgan's command and left everything to him, but he had thought Morgan was on the side of the enemy. How stupid he had been! It's all because of us that he's caught," 
thought the boy remorsefully. I've been a fool, and I thought I was doing something clever and right, and now we're all landed in this mess, and girls too. What will they do with us? I suppose the only safe thing for them to do is to keep us prisoner till they finish this mining job, collected a fortune from the metal, whatever it is, and gone. Llewellyn Thomas was now giving some sharp orders, and the men were listening. Timmy was growling, held by the collar in a stranglehold by one of the men. If he tried to squirm away, the man twisted his hand in the collar a little more, and poor Timmy was half choked. George was wild with despair. Julian had to keep stopping her from trying to make a dash to Timmy. He was afraid that these rough men would strike her. Eily sat in a corner, hugging her lamb and Di, who had been far too scared even to take a little nip at any of the men. Morgan was held by two hefty miners, but quite suddenly he hurled himself sideways at one of them and sent him flying, and then at the other, who staggered away and fell over a tin. With a great roar, Morgan stumbled to the pool and waded to the entrance of the tunnel that led to the sea, his hands still tightly tied behind his back. The fool," said Llewellyn Thomas. "If he thinks he can get along that tunnel with his hands tied, he is mad. He will fall into that rushing river, and without his hands to help him, he will drown. No, don't go after him. Let him go. Let him drown." We shall be well rid of him. The shepherd struggled to his feet to go after his master, knowing quite well that Llewellyn was right. No man could get along that rough edge to the river without his hands to steady him, feeling along the wall at the side, and one slip would put him into the churning, hurrying river that ran at full pelt down to the sea far below, at the bottom of the hill. But Morgan did not mean to escape. He was not going to struggle along beside that treacherous torrent. He had come up all the way beside it with the shepherd, and knew how easy it was to slip on the wet, rocky edge. No, Morgan had another plan. Julian watched him disappear into the tunnel, and his heart sank. He too knew that no one could walk along there without free hands to help him. But what could anyone do? The boss. Turned to the other men, who were still staring after Morgan. He was just about to say something to them when a roar came to their ears. Not the roar of the torrent in the underground tunnel, nor the roar of the strange rumbling mine. No, the roar of a giant voice that crashed out of the tunnel and echoed round the cave. It was Morgan's enormous voice. Morgan calling the names of his seven great dogs. The children listened in amazement to this unbelievable voice. Die, Bob, Tang, come to me. Dune, Jol, Rafe, Hal. The names echoed round and round the cave, and it seemed as if the place was full of giant voices. Eily. Who was used to hearing the dogs called didn't turn a hair, but the others crouched back in amazement at the sound of such a voice. 
Surely no one in all the world had ever shouted so loudly before. Die! Die! Rafe! Rafe! The great voice boomed again and again, seeming to be louder each time. At first, Llewellyn Thomas, the boss, was taken aback. But then he laughed sneeringly. Does he think he can get his dogs up from the beach, he said, all that way down the tunnel? <laughs> He's mad. Let him be. Then again, the great voice roared out the names of the seven dogs belonging to Morgan and the shepherd. Die! Bob! Tang! Dune! Joel! Rafe! Hal! At the last name, Morgan's voice seemed to crack. The shepherd raised his head in dismay. Morgan had overstrained that great voice of his, and no wonder. No megaphone could possibly have been louder. There was silence after that. Morgan called no more. Neither did he appear again. The children felt scared and depressed, and Eily began to whimper. The curious shuddering vibration began to creep into everything again, and the boss turned sharply, giving some more orders. Two of the men ran to the tunnel at the back of the cave and disappeared. Then things took on a curious shimmer, as if a heat haze had spread everywhere, and it began to feel very warm in the cave. Suddenly, something happened. At first, it sounded far off in the distance, a confused noise that made Timmy tug at his collar again and prick his ears. He barked, and the man who was holding him hit him. What's that noise? said Llewellyn Thomas sharply, looking all round. There was no telling where it came from, but it grew louder and louder, and then suddenly Julian knew what it was. It was the loud barking of seven angry dogs. The shepherd knew it too, and a glad smile came over his face. He glanced at Llewellyn to see if he recognised it as well. Yes, the boss had certainly recognised that dreadful sound now. He could hardly believe it. Surely it was not possible that Morgan's voice, enormous as it was, had echoed all the way down the tunnel and been heard by the sharp, pricked-up ears of the dogs who loved him. But so it was. Di, the oldest dog, who loved his master more than any of them, had stood tense and listening ever since Morgan and the shepherd had left them, and, from somewhere far distant, echoing down to the end of the tunnel they were guarding, Di had heard the faint echoes of his master's beloved voice. His bark had told the other dogs the news, and, led by Di, they had all rushed up the rocky tunnel, sure-footed on the slippery, rocky path beside the racing river. They came to Morgan, sitting beside the river, not far from the big cave, a little way down the tunnel. It was a moment of joy for Morgan and his dogs. Di soon snuffed at his hands and bit the ropes in half. Morgan was free. Down now, and hush, commanded Morgan. He began to walk steadily back to the cave, then motioned the dogs before him. Attack, he cried in Welsh. 
And then, to the men's horror, the seven dogs raced out of the tunnel at a great speed, barking, growling, snarling, with the triumphant Morgan behind them, so tall that he had to bend double to leave the tunnel. The men fled, every one of them. Llewellyn had turned to run even before the dogs appeared and was gone. Di leapt at one man and got him down, and Tang leapt at another. The cave was filled with snarls and growls and excited barking. Timmy delightedly joined in, for his captor had rushed away too. Even little Di ran to join this wonderful fight, while the children stood amazed and thankful to see their enemy defeated. Who would have thought of this? said Dick, sending the crates crashing down. What an astounding thing! Hurrah for Morgan and his seven dogs! Chapter 22 All's Well That Ends Well Morgan would not let the children stay underground any longer. We have things to do, he said in his deep voice which sounded rather hoarse now. You will go back to the farm and telephone to the police for me. You will say, Morgan has won, and tell them to send a boat to the little creek I have already told them of. There I will bring these men all the way down the tunnel to the sea. Go now, at once. Obey me this time, boy. Yes, said Julian. This man was a hero, and he had thought him a villain. He was ready to obey his smallest command now. Then a thought struck him, and he turned back. The old woman, he said. Mrs. Thomas, that man's mother, what about her? And we've locked the caretaker up in his room. You will not do anything but go to the farm and telephone, said Morgan sternly. I will do everything there is to be done. Take Eily with you to the farm. She must not be here. Now, go! And Julian went. He and the others took one last look round at the men, all pinioned by the dogs, lying still and panic-stricken. Then, with Eily and her lamb and dog, he led the others up the tunnel again, and at last back into the cellars. I don't like leaving that old lady up there in the tower, said Dick. No, but obviously Morgan has his plans, said Julian who was not going to disobey orders in any way this time. I expect he's arranged something with the police. We can't interfere now. We messed things up a bit, I'm afraid. They climbed soberly up to the place where they had left their toboggans. It took them some time, and they were beginning to feel very hungry. But Julian wouldn't let them stop, even to eat some sandwiches. No, he said, I've got to telephone to the police as soon as ever I can. No stopping now. We'll munch our sandwiches on the way down to the farm. It wasn't very difficult to get out of the pothole, but they had left the ropes dangling down. Julian and Dick helped the two girls up by pushing them, and they in turn helped to pull up the boys from the top of the hole. Eily scrambled up easily, swinging delightedly on a rope, and then flinging herself out of the hole. The lamb leapt up in a miraculous manner, and Julian handed Di to the small girl. Timmy was hauled up in the same way as he'd been let down. He had badly wanted to stay with the other dogs, 
but nothing would make him leave George. Well, that's that," said Julian, scrambling out last of all. Now let's see. We could toboggan down this slope and halfway up our own slope. That would save a lot of time. Eily, you're to come with us to the farm. No," said Eily. "Yes," Eily Bach said. Julian, I want you to. He took her small hand in his, and she smiled her sudden little smile, quite content to go along with this big, kind boy, even though she was afraid of going down to the farm for fear she should meet her mother. Eily, good girl," said Julian, setting the little thing on his toboggan. They tobogganed down the slope at a great speed without any mishap, and halfway up the opposite slope. It seemed odd to be out in the dazzling daylight after the dark tunnels underground. Their adventure below began to seem slightly unreal. "We'll leave the toboggans at the hut," said Julian as they dragged them up the rest of the slope. "Anyone thirsty? I am. I think it must be something to do with that mine." My mouth got as dry as anything as soon as we were down there. Everyone said the same. I'll run into the hut and pour out some orange jade," said Anne. "You stack the toboggans in their place, Jew, and just see if there's enough oil in the can out in the bunker. We'll need to fill the stove tonight, and if there isn't enough, we must bring some up with us." Julian gave her the key of the hut, and she unlocked it and went in with George. They poured orangeade into five cups and drank thirstily. Their mouths were drier than they had ever been before. Anne felt thankful that she didn't have to wait any longer for a drink. I think the roof of my mouth would have stuck to my tongue," she said, putting down her cup. That was lovely. There's plenty of oil," reported Julian, coming to drink his orangeade. My word, I needed this. I'd not like to work down in that mine. They locked the hut and set off down to the farm, munching their sandwiches hungrily. They tasted very good indeed, and even Eily asked for one after another. Timmy had his share, and once they missed him and had to stop and call him. Has he lost his bit of meat in the snow? Wondered Anne. But no, he, like the rest of them, was suffering from a very dry mouth. And was busy licking the snow, letting it melt in his mouth and trickle down his dry throat. Mrs. Jones was most surprised to see them. When she heard Julian's request to telephone to the police, she looked worried. "It's all right, Mrs. Jones," said Julian comfortingly. "It's a message to them from Morgan. Everything is fine. We'll tell you what's happened as soon as he comes home. He might not like us to say anything till then." The police. Did not seem at all surprised to hear Julian's message. They appeared to be expecting it. We will see to the matter," said the sergeant in his deep, stolid voice. "Thank you," and he rang off at once. Julian wondered what would happen next. What had Morgan arranged? They were pleased to see Mrs. Jones bringing in bowls of hot chicken soup, as they sat talking round the wood fire she had hurriedly lit in the living room. Oh, just what we feel like," said Anne gratefully. "I'm still awfully thirsty, aren't you, George? And look, Timmy, there's a nice meaty bone for you. You are kind, Mrs. Jones. You know, 
I feel pretty awful about all this now," said Julian. "We shouldn't have interfered after Morgan said we weren't to. I wish we hadn't. He can't think much of us." "I vote we all apologise humbly," said Dick. "How could we have thought he was the villain of the piece? I know he's dour and silent, but he didn't look mean or cruel." "We'd better stay down here at the farm till Morgan comes back," said George. "Quite apart from wanting to say I'm sorry." I'd like to know what happened. So would I," said Anne. "And Eily ought to wait for her father. He'll want to know that she's safe." So they asked Mrs. Jones if they could stay till Morgan came home. She was delighted. "Of course, now," she said. "We've a roasting turkey today, and you shall come and have supper with us in our room for a change." This all sounded rather good. The children gathered round their fire to talk. And Timmy rested his head on George's knee. She looked at his neck. That man almost choked him, she said. Oh, look, Julian, he's bruised all round his poor neck. Now don't start moaning over Timmy's neck again, for goodness' sake," said Dick. Honestly, George, I'm sure Tim thinks the adventure was worth a bruised neck. He's not grumbling. He was jolly brave, I think. And didn't he enjoy himself when the other dogs rushed into the cave and he joined in the fight? I wonder what they'll do about that poor old woman," said Anne. "She will be glad her son is alive, I suppose. But what a shock for her to know he'd lied to her and sold what is really hers—that strange metal under the hill." "Well, I imagine it won't be allowed to be sold now," said Julian. "What a plan that was!" To get men up that tunnel to mine the stuff, and to send it down by rafts to waiting ships hidden in that creek, we ought to go down and examine that creek. It would be interesting to see what sort of a place it is down there. It must be well hidden in a fold of the cliff, I should think. Yes, let's do that tomorrow," said George, thrilled. "I vote we stay here tonight. I feel tired after such an adventure, don't you?" I do a bit," said Julian. "Well, I suppose there won't be quite so much shuddering and shimmering and rumbling now. Funny that hill should always have been so peculiar, isn't it? Plows that will not plow, spades that will not dig. Must be some kind of iron, I suppose, that magnetizes things. Oh well, it's all beyond me." Morgan came back with the shepherd when it was dark. Julian went straight up to the burly farmer. "We want to apologise for being such idiots," he said. "We shouldn't have interfered after what you said." Morgan gave a broad smile. He seemed to be in a very good humour indeed. "Forget it, boy," he said. "All's well now. The police came up the river tunnel, and all the men are safe in jail. Luanin Thomas is a sad man tonight." His mother is free and is staying with friends. Poor lady, she doesn't understand what has happened, and that is as well. And maybe now the right people will get that strange metal. It's worth a hundred times its weight in gold. Come in for your supper, Morgenbach, and Shepherd too," said Mrs. Jones in her lilting voice. "The children are coming too. We've a roasting turkey. It's your birthday, Morgan boy." Well, there now, I didn't know it," said Morgan.
and gave his mother such a hug that she squealed. Let's go into the turkey. I've had nothing all day. Soon they were all sitting down before the most enormous turkey that the children had ever seen in their lives. Morgan carved it swiftly. Then he said something to his mother in Welsh, and she smiled and nodded. Yes, you do that, she said. Morgan collected some slices of turkey on a big enamel dish, and then went to the door that led from the living room into the farmyard. He roared loudly, and the children jumped. What a voice! Die, Tang, Bob, Doon, Rafe, Doll, Hal. He's calling the dogs," said Anne. Just as he called them up the tunnel. <laughs> well, they certainly deserve a good dinner. Then down to the door came the seven dogs, jostling each other, barking excitedly. Morgan threw them the slices of turkey, and they gobbled the tasty bits up greedily. Woof," said Timmy politely from behind him, and Morgan turned. He solemnly cut a big slice and a little slice. "Yeah," he said to Timmy and Little Di. "You did well too. Catch." "There'll not be much left of your birthday turkey," said his mother, half cross, half amused. "Now." Fill your glasses again, children, and we will drink to my Morgan. A better son there never was. Anne poured homemade lemonade into the empty glasses, while Morgan sat and smiled, listening to his seven dogs still barking together outside. Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Shouted everyone, raising their glasses, and Julian added his own few words. Happy birthday, and may your voice never grow less.